Hello and welcome to this session looking at the employment law implications of the coronavirus crisis in the UK. My name is Sarah Chilton and I'm joined by my colleague Beth Hale and we are both partners at CM Murray in London specialising in employment and partnership law. I'm just going to run through first of all what we're going to look at today before we get into the detail and obviously we are taking questions as well as we go through and we'll seek to answer as many of those as we can and if you have any questions at the end of this session that we haven't been able to answer or that you think about afterwards then do get in touch with us and let us know and we'll do our best to help you. So we're going to look at the new government help that's been put in place and we're going to look at what was already in place under the law in the UK. So covering off things like redundancies and changing contractual terms and conditions. And then once we've run through that start, that, that section, we're going to talk about some of the common questions that we've all been receiving related to some of the issues that have arisen over the last few weeks. So that will relate to things like sick pay or whether someone needs to attend work or not, depending on for example, if they've got a particular medical condition um, and questions like that. And obviously, as we say, if you want to ask questions throughout, then just do that. And um, if it's something that we're going to get to later, we might just leave the question and come to it later. And if not, we'll try and answer it there and then. But do, do, don't hesitate to ask us. And um, so I think um, what we might just start with is I thought I would give a very quick summary of the non-employment law issue things that the government have spoken about just to make sure that everyone knows where we're at with that. Um, and then Beth, I'm going to hand over to Beth, who's going to talk through some of the more specific employment law issues that the government have announced. So... <coughs> In looking at the non-employment law issues and help that the government have announced for businesses in very brief terms, um, we are lucky that they are going to defer VAT, although at the moment it's unclear exactly what that looks like, but they essentially said that there'll be no VAT payable to the end of this financial year, which will be really helpful to a lot of us. Um, there's going to be protection from leases. Many of you might have seen that individuals who are tenants, residential tenants, have got that protection and that looks like it's been extended to businesses as well. For any people who are self-employed, and that obviously includes um, partners in a limited liability partnership and a normal partnership, the self-assessment payment due in July is deferred until January 2021, which will be of a great help to a number of law firms and other professional services firms. Um, there is business rate relief for some sectors, not all. And then there's the interest-free business loan scheme, which, as we understand it, is getting up and running, but is not fully necessarily up and running with every bank yet. Um, so an, a number of measures. And um, what we would also just say in terms of um, the most up-to-date position is that in relation to self-employed people, and I think we have a number of um, people in the legal sector and accountancy sector on this, um, self-employed um, people obviously fall into that category to the extent that they are um, LLP members, for example. There's no specific announcement yet as to what the government might be doing for self-employed people. The government have said that they are conscious that a lot of self-employed people will suffer a huge reduction in earnings over this period of time, but that they're um, trying to find a way to help those people is more complicated, they say, than putting in place the furlough 80% of pay scheme that they've done for employees. And they say they can't just start sort of handing out lump sums of money to self-employed people. They need to try and look at whether there's a way to do that that's fair to those who are losing out of money, but equally doesn't give a windfall to those who are not. So on the self-employed issue, I'd say watch this space because we are seeing potential announcements coming out day to day. And hopefully this week we will see something about the self-employed. Um, so that's a more general overview. I'm going to hand over to Beth to talk to you about the new furlough scheme, which is a word that we've all had to basically start using 20 times a day even before we never ever said it. Um, it's an American uh, employment law expression that never quite made its way over this side of the Atlantic. Um, but now we're all very familiar with it. So I will let Beth introduce that one. Thanks, Sarah. Um, so we should have said at the beginning that we are recording this um, for our own purposes. We will circulate it to those uh, who've, who've joined um, after the call. Um, and if you don't want your any contributions to be recorded, then the best way to do that is to um, send it to us on the group chat rather than um, rather than speaking uh, via the video. Um, but as Sarah says, we're happy to take questions via video as well or, or, or on the um uh, or, or you don't have to show your picture you can just talk to us um, so 
So yeah, the new government furlough scheme, as Sarah says, is a word that we've all had to get used to. And I think there's part of the confusion lies um, in amongst the general public with the fact that the government have been, or the, the people, the spokespeople for the government have been using terminology which is unfamiliar to a lot of people, but also misusing terminology which is um, which is familiar to employment lawyers, such as layoff, which has a very specific meaning in, in employment law, and the government have basically been using it interchangeably with redundancy. And so there, there's, it has given rise to quite a lot of confusion and people aren't entirely sure what is meant. The, the second thing to say about the furlough scheme is that, that the details are still very sketchy. They, we are being promised further detail that hasn't yet been provided. So a lot of what we're saying is based on... Uh, sort of assumptions and what we've been able to glean um, and I'm conscious that there are some people in the audience who will um, have views on this and will have also um, looked at these issues so if anyone has any thoughts or anything uh, any insights to contribute please feel free we'd be really happy to hear them I think um, there is you know everyone's learning as we go on this so it's, it's a bit of a uncharted territory so but the basics of the furlough scheme are as follows um, so when, if an employer has insufficient work to give to some of its employees or all of its employees or a number of its employees, what they can do as an alternative to redundancy, so as a, in a way to retain these people's jobs, they can put them on what's called furlough. And that means that they don't work and there seems to be no middle ground there. It can't be used to support short-time working or, or part-time working, seems to be the case. Um, and you designate these people as furloughed and then HM, and HMRC repay you 80% um, of their salary capped at £2,500 per month. They remain employed, but they're not working. Um, holiday probably continues to accrue during that time. Um, and probably their pay goes to, their pay basically moves to £2,500 gross monthly or the whatever the lower of that or lower than that if they earn less than that and the employer is, is obliged to deduct PAYE as usual it's unclear what the position is on national insurance it's also um, unclear that the position on PAYE is is also not sufficiently clear yet and um, we think that and the government seems to be indicating that employers will be able to top up from the 80 percent 200 percent of salary so that employers are in fact uh, employees are in fact earning as they would normally do if, if the employer wants to although there's no there would be no obligation on employers to do that um, but i think that does impact on what the employees what the employers would have to do in terms of um consultation and how they would have to deal with their employees if they do have concerns about um about changing their contracts to allow for the furlough scheme to be put in place. We've had a couple of questions on this. Um, and the first one is Beth's touched on this already, but I'll just um, go over it just to make sure that, um, well, I was going to say we've answered the question. The, the truth is that there's not a clear answer to the question, but that we've dealt with the question. So the question is about whether or not the um, it's net or gross pay um, and whether or not there's employers, NICs, and also in relation to benefits. So what we think the position is likely to be is, as Beth says, that holidays will accrue during the furlough period um, and that it seems the way that the the provision to the extent that it is a provision the sort of announcement has been drafted on the government website is essentially to say that the pay changes so that it becomes 80 percent or 2500 now that language would indicate to us that it effectively means that gross pay just changes to that figure but we don't know if that's the case i mean it would be slightly counterproductive in a way for that to happen for the government to then reimburse it and then to take tax back on it. But it would also make it administratively much easier, I think. So it, it, I think it's most likely going to be that that just changes the gross pay figure. But again, we just don't know. As for employers, NIC is completely unclear. There's no indication that we've been able to find. If anyone else on this um, call has found anything from the government, I know there's a lot circulating, not from the government, which suggests one way or another, but I found absolutely nothing actually from the government about this. Um, and it, it's possible that they might be payable, although again, I think that would be counterproductive. Um, and then the second question relates to furloughing staff. Um, so the question is, if we want to cut a department by 50%, can we put half on furlough um, and half working and rotate them every two weeks? Um, and then... 
So eighty. So it's it's fairly split. I mean, basically, we don't know the answer to this question. Now, in theory, I can't see a problem with that. But I suppose what the government would probably say if they were arguing the country is, well, why don't you just put everyone on 50%? But that's not very good for the employees. Um, and it's certainly not the best thing for the employer. I mean, I can't see a problem in theory. Um, I think, though, the problem is that it depends how the practicalities of designated someone on furlough apply. So when all we know so far is that once you've selected the employees that go on furlough leave, you designate them on the HMRC website. And I suppose it just depends how frequently you're able to change them. But as I say, in, in principle, I can't see that being a difficulty. Um, what we would just say on that, um, and a lot of people have been asking us more generally, you know, what happens if I say have four in the department and I've got enough work for two of them. So, you know, my, my entire work hasn't dried up um, and I need to select people. What criteria would I use to select people for furlough? And we would just say that, you know, apply the same principles and we'll come on to talk about this in a minute as you would to selecting people for redundancy. So, you know, look at objective criteria relating to the role that that person does um, and, you know, whether or not that role can be fulfilled by others, whether or not other people can take over parts of it. Um, and, you know, have a fair and objective selection process for this, particularly because as the questioner sort of indicates, for some people getting paid 80%, if, they're, if they won't cap out at the 2,500, getting paid 80% to not work for some people might seem like an attractive option. And so it's important for both, you know, the people that are kept in the business working and the people that are furloughed, that it's a fair um, selection process because unlike redundancy where the people that let complain are the ones who are made redundant in this case you could get complaints either side um so those are um just to address those two points but you know unfortunately we are in really strange unprecedented times where the government have announced something they are expecting employers to take this up to avoid redundancies and yet they've left so many unanswered questions about it um, I think I would just chip in there, Sarah, and say I think there is no suggestion that you won't be able to um, sort of dip in and out of furlough. But I think that there will be administrative issues and the government may say that if you're able to dip in and out of that in that way, is it is it a genuine furlough situation where you don't have work for them? Um, so I think they may put in place some kind of um, sort of anti-abuse mechanism to um to, to prevent that happening but at the moment there's no suggestion that you wouldn't be able to dip in and out as work and supply of work demands and um, there's also a question as to whether or not you someone can furlough all staff and use casual workers as required I mean that is surely just trying to get around the the system entirely and I mean whether or not um there would be a specific rule that envisages that and prevents it but I can't, I mean, that's surely not got to be permissible under the scheme because to meet the scheme, you've got to basically be in the position that you can't provide work to your employees. And other countries who've got schemes like this, and um, there are tests around economic hardship and things like that for the business. So, you know, we are quite fortunate that it is simply applicable to everyone, every size of business, everyone who's on PYE can avail themselves of this. And that's quite a fortunate position to be in compared to some other jurisdictions. So, you know, I think that, that, that the idea of furloughing staff and then recruiting casual staff, presumably at lower pay, to do work if you need it, is presumably not permissible. And in fact, coming back to the point about whether or not you put people on furlough, off furlough, um, I mean, I would hope that there's the flexibility to do that because then, you know, hopefully a business wouldn't need to recruit casual staff to work as required because what they could, in fact, do is just take someone off furlough for a week and then put them back on furlough for a week, for example. Um, but yeah, we are in unfortunately uncharted territory with this. And um, as we said, unhelpful to have an announcement with very little detail and then people wanting to put in place this scheme immediately and really not having all the answers to all the questions. Um, so I suppose moving on from furlough, I'm very happy to take further questions on that. Um, oh, sorry, Sarah, just talking about what a, what, what a, what putting people on furlough might look like in terms of the process you have to go through with your employees. <coughs> so firstly, it will be a change in the employee's contract. So you will have to consult with them and that may involve a collective consultation. Um, if, if, um, and I think this is unclear that if, if you are changing uh, the, the employment contracts of a large group of employees, so 20 or more employees, 
Um, and the alternative to the, to, the, to the acceptance of those contractual changes is redundancy. Um, ordinarily, an employer would have to go through the collective consultation process under under um, the trade union under the Tulka, and that would involve in electing representatives um, and consulting with those representatives, and then um, then carrying out individual consultations as well. Now, there is an argument, I think, that the current circumstances might constitute special circumstances under that legislation, which would mean that that wouldn't have to be done or that it would have to be done on a more, that, or, or that you could avoid some of those obligations. But um, I think it would be helpful if the, if the government could clarify that, 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 that no collective consultation is necessary in order to put a large number of people onto furlough leave, because that will obviously delay things for employers and up their costs. Um, but I think it will be important for employers to be talking to their employees about the contractual changes they're proposing to make. Um, I would say the only potential caveat to that is that um, if an employee is in fact, if you're, if an employer is putting someone onto furlough leave and is going to top up the extra 20%, which it seems is going to be allowed, um, although not clear, but the, it may be, it is likely to be open to the employer to pay the extra 20% on top of the 80% or to top up if they, if they get 2,500 to top them up to full pay. Um, if the employer is going to do that, then really nothing is changing contractually for the employee and they are getting exactly the same pay as they were before they were put on furlough leave. Then there is an argument that there's no contractual change and perhaps proper consultation is not necessary, although... Uh, you would still want to explain to them that they are going to be at home and doing no work and therefore so it's it, it's still uh, keeping that line of communication open and explaining to employees what is going on will still remain important. And just to add to that I think that even if that is the case and some employees are not going to have any drop in pay unless you are furloughing the entire workforce or the entirety of you know, a group who do exactly the same job, there would be significant risk that you are going to get complaints from people as to who's been selected and who hasn't. And what a fair consultation process will do is minimise the risk of complaints around that, both from an employee relations perspective, but also in case any of those complaints are actually around issues such as discrimination or whistleblowing. So it would be important to demonstrate that the, the kind of selection process has been applied equally to people. Because as, as we say, if you are going to top up pay in particular, then the people who are furloughed um, might think they're getting a, a better deal than the people who are still working. But obviously that wouldn't apply if the entire workforce was being furloughed because then there's no um, selection of people in that context. Um, so in terms of what the alternatives are, so, you know, this was really good news to us and to a lot of businesses on Friday last week, that there was going to be this scheme. We'd obviously seen other countries in the EU implementing these schemes, and we're really hopeful that something would come in the UK as well. Having said that, a number of employers are, are also thinking about alternatives. And you know, some employers are also saying to us, well, we already were in financial difficulty before this came along. So we'd already started thinking about redundancies or other alternatives. And this has just exacerbated it. This was one thing to just mention about furlough, which I don't think we um, mentioned, was that if you've already made people redundant because you were in that position or because you just acted really quickly, um, this furlough scheme is backdated to the 1st of March. So you could um, effectively take the people that, you'd been made, that had been made redundant and um, reverse that and put them on the furlough scheme instead. But for some employers, they may still be thinking about alternatives. So just to, to quickly recap what those alternatives might look like. So we've got the two alternatives, which get spoken about quite a lot, but which actually don't apply to a huge number of businesses in practice. And th those are layoff and short time working. Um, so for any of the employment lawyers on this, you know um, sort of the ins and outs of this, but I'm going to just cover it off at a really high level because I don't expect it will apply to many of the people that we are speaking to. So both of these are um, mechanisms which allow an employer to effectively give an employee less work and pay them less at the same time. But in to enable um, the employer to be able to use them, the employer needs a contractual power to actually lay someone off or put them on short time working. There are some more limited cases in which an employer might be able to argue that it's custom and practice within that industry and therefore, it's so common within a particular industry that you know everyone else is doing it. We didn't put it in our contract, but we still should have the implied ability to do it because it's so common. But that's not going to be that widespread. And most contracts that that most people look at, particularly if we're dealing with 
professional financial services in the city um, <coughs> won't have these types of clauses in them. They are more common in um, industries where there is typically a very a, a big fluctuation in work. So manufacturing um, and hospitality, for example, and construction would much more common commonly see layoff and short-time working clauses. Um, layoff is the not to be confused with redundancy and not to be confused with furlough. Um, from an employment law perspective, layoff is very specifically defined as where you temporarily suspend work for someone and you temporarily suspend pay for that person uh, to, to match that. And it can be for four weeks if it's continuous or six weeks in a 13-week period. So it's very limited in time. So that's another reason why I think it's not going to be that applicable in the current situation, because we're looking at probably a longer period of time than that. Um, and employees remain employed um, during layoff and they remain entitled to a number of rights, um, but they obviously just don't get paid. Um, if at the end of the period um, they are not reinstated back to work and pay, then they're entitled to a redundancy payment. Um, short time working, similar in concept, but it's just operates slightly differently. So that's where an employer can effectively reduce an employee's work and pay. And it, it kicks in when that is reduced below half, so below 50%. Um, and that, um, again, um, rights and et cetera accrue during that time and the employee just works less and gets paid less. So some employers will be looking at that and it's probably more likely to be employers where that's what they do anyway. And maybe during the year they have periods of layoff and short time working and are used to doing it. And they might just use that instead of the furlough scheme at this particular point in time. Um, but obviously, um, if employers can use the furlough scheme, then we would certainly be encouraging them to think about that because that's going to be better for staff. And also, particularly compared to short time working, where the employer still has to pay something under the furlough scheme, the employer's obligations to pay can be reduced. Um, in terms of, uh, like the furlough scheme, and like we'll come on to talk about with redundancy, the same issues apply in relation to selection and processes and consultation, uh, particularly relevant if you're not doing it to everybody in group or everybody in the workforce um, and so I don't think we want to talk about that really for any longer because I just as I say don't think it'll be that applicable but it's worth just covering off in case you're hearing these words thrown around um, I'm going to just pass back to Beth to just summarize the position on redundancy in case people are actually thinking about that as a more long-term solution Sorry, just working out how to take myself off mute. Um, so thanks, Sarah. So I mean, the, the, there are obviously two processes in relation to redundancy. The first is if you are making fewer than 20 people redundant. And the second is if you're making more than 20, 20 or more people redundant in, in a space of 90 days in one establishment. So dealing first with the, with the individual consultation and the, the obligations where there are fewer than 20 people being made redundant. Um, the current situation would not remove the obligation to carry out a fair process in relation to that redundancy. And that would look something like um, having a meeting with them, discussing the options, discussing what's available, discussing whether there are any considering whether there are any suitable alternatives for them in the business. Um, and then uh, having probably a further meeting with them before notice is given to, to actually terminate. Um, and you would need to apply fair selection criteria and as Sarah has already said that selection criteria must not be based on any discriminatory or um, or other factors such as whistleblowing or or, uh, or anything that, that risks breaching the Equality Act or the whistleblowing legislation. Um, in relation to collective consultation the process is a little bit more complicated. The first thing to say about collective consultation and I referred to collective consultation briefly in relation to furlough is that there is an obligation where you are going to make um, 20 or more people redundant to file what's called a form HR1 um, with the government and that failure to do that is a criminal offence. In practice, the, the um, prosecutions under for failure to, to complete an HR1 have been pretty few and far between, but it's worth just flagging up that that is an issue. And so if you are thinking about 20 or more redundancies, that's something to think about very, very early. Um, collective consultation also brings with it particular time um, obligated time limits in relation to consultations. So, um, if you're making twenty or more people redundant, no, you, no person should walk out the door. No redundancy should take effect um, before 40, before thirty days after the consultation has commenced. 
or 45 days if it's if it's 100 or more. Um, and so there, there are pretty strict time limits and that can obviously tie businesses' hands in relation to how that is done and, and how quickly they can affect these processes. Um, the consultation involves in collective situations involves uh, electing representatives um, and consulting with those elective, elected representatives. And crucially, the collective consultation obligations don't remove the obligation to also carry out individual consultations. Um, the, there are there is a special circumstances defence to the collective consultation obligation, but what that doesn't do is take away the obligation to consult altogether. It means that you may an employer may be able to say, well, I couldn't do it all because the circumstances were so extraordinary that I. Uh, could only do a limited part of it or I could only consult in a very limited way. Um, and I, I think um, so insolvency in and of itself is not a um, special circumstance for those purposes. But um, I suspect that um, the current situation may well go some way to, to helping an employer who isn't able to carry out the full consultation in these circumstances. So I, I would be surprised if there wasn't some, um, I suspect there might be some cases on that after this has all come to an end, but I think that, that I'd be surprised if, if it wasn't, if some consideration wasn't given to this being a special circumstance um, for those purposes. Uh, all employees with two years or more service, continuous service, have a right to a, a statutory redundancy payment. Um, and, uh, and so that, that's whether it's 20 or more or fewer, or 20 or fewer, you would still have to pay those redundancy payments. Thanks, Beth. And I think the other question we've been asked about this is what if an employer can't afford to pay a redundancy payment? So there is a fund, it's the um, National Insurance Fund, um, a government fund for paying statutory redundancy payments, but that's where an employer genuinely can't afford to pay them, i.e. is um, unable to reach its debts and potentially insolvent, rather than when it just feels that in fact there are other obligations it would rather pay. In that case, they are obliged to pay employers the redundancy payment. Um, they can't, for example, you know, choose to pay the rent rather than the redundancy payment. If that was the case, then they would be potentially insolvent and, and should really be taking specialist insolvency advice on that, which is not something that I would even want to try and uh, straight into. Um, so um, moving on from that, and, and obviously if anyone has questions about redundancy, very happy to chat about that later. But we are on furlough. Do we, should we deal with those now before we move on, Sarah? Is that? Uh, I don't have any questions on no, furlough. No, no, I've had, I've had a couple. Um, okay. The first one is uh, how would HMRC know if a consultant was still working when furloughed? So, what would the enforcement mechanisms? I mean, I don't think we know what those enforcement mechanisms are likely to be yet, but, but I think that there will be. Um, some enforcement mechanisms, there will be some um, attempt by, the, by HMRC to ensure that this is not being abused. And I think that there will be some sort of anti-abuse mechanisms within the legislation itself once it, um, within the framework itself, once it is released fully and once it, the situation becomes clear. Um, and I think just... just on, I was going to say on that, I've seen a few people asking questions around uh, what happens if my employees normally are, say, um, you know, office-based and in the normal course of things, they would check in on their emails on their phone on holiday or on the weekends. That's just a normal way of working. And the idea of them not doing that for two months is quite odd. They would do that on any type of leave. Um, and we just don't know that yet. But I would expect that there, even though I agree that there would be some sort of anti-abuse, that if something was so minimal as to just be someone still having their work phone and being able to just check their emails without actually actively doing any work, I would hope that that wouldn't trigger any sort of breach of the furlough scheme. Um, but it is something that we're going to be looking out for. And as soon as we get any guidance on that, we would um, circulate that. But um, that's a common issue that people are concerned about, I think. And just another question is, um, if an employer has already made staff redundant, um, can they... Can they still use the furlough scheme? Um, the, the, the suggestion from the government is that um, redundancy, where redundancies have already been made, um, that they can be sort of undone. And I'm not I, uh, unclear quite how that works legally, I think. But I think what the government are indicating is that where, where re redundancies have been made and as an alternative, the employer could have relied on the furlough scheme or availed itself of the furlough scheme, that they will be able to do that. Um, it's backdated to the 1st of March. So the suggestion is that any redundancies made um, 
from 29th February onwards that should be um, that there's potential for kind of undoing those. As I say, I think how that works contractually and legally will be a fun headache for employment lawyers. But I think that that, that is the government's intention. Um, another question we've had is if the employer doesn't want to use the furlough scheme and the employee says, I, I do want, you know, why can't, you know, tries to push them to use the furlough scheme. Is there any um, remedy for the employee there? Um, I think it is, uh, as it's currently framed, it is an option for employers. It is not something that an employee can, um, can enforce or can insist upon. Um, they can obviously have discussions with their employer and say, would it not make more sense to furlough me in these circumstances? But if the employer thinks that for some reason it is better for their business or it makes more sense for their business to make a number of employees redundant, an employee can't enforce that um, unless, I suppose, they could say that the reason you didn't furlough me, that you made me redundant and didn't furlough me was, was discrimination in some way, in which case they would have to bring a claim to the employment tribunal, so which would present its own issues. All I would add to that is that if you were in a position of making redundancies as opposed to furloughing, I would include a part of the redundancy consultation process to make sure you have applied your mind to why you shouldn't be furloughing them. Because I can imagine that um, that will come into the test of whether or not it's a fair redundancy. So it would be worth just having some sort of part in that process, the redundancy process where, you know, there has been a consideration of why furloughing is not appropriate and that that's been explained to the employee because I think that will very much help anyone who's doing that to defend the decision to make someone redundant. Absolutely. I think as when you're carrying out a redundancy, you need to uh, follow a fair process and consider alternatives to redundancy as, as a sort of very clear part of what that redundancy consultation looks like. And furloughing is obviously an alternative to redundancy, which you will have to which you will have need to have applied your mind. Are there any other questions on furlough? Beth, have you got anything else there that we need to go through before we? You're on mute. Apologies. Excuse the tech. We're, we're just learning. Um, so no, I, I don't think so. No. No. So uh, yeah. Sorry. One other question is that if if you have. Um, if as a business, what you have is a number of different employees doing different roles and work has seriously dropped off. But you, you still need a little bit from everybody because, because everybody plays a different role in the business. And so you can't say, well, these people are redundant, um, but just everyone's role is reduced. Can you, um, can you use furlough in those, in those circumstances? And I think the answer to that is no, unfortunately. I think what you'd need to be looking at there is um, other alternatives to redundancy or alternatives to furloughing, such as asking people to work reduced hours or, or accept reduced salary. Um, and that, I, I think... Uh, it, you can't sort of partially furlough people. Um, and so that I think the only alternative there is to agree reduced hours or, or reduced income. And that, I suppose, ties into the final point that we would make about in this section in relation to you know, alternatives to furloughing and options for the business to try and manage the financial obligations that they have to employees. And that is just something that we've seen a lot in previous times of financial difficulty. And that's around simply reducing employment uh, contractual obligations so reducing most people would start doing four-fifths of uh, work with four-fifths of pay um, so offering you know effectively asking people to take a day's pay cut per week on a temporary basis um, and that's really common there's various different permutations that might work for individual businesses I know some businesses that are doing one week on one week off for different staff it very much depends on what the business is and what it does and how that works with servicing the business but that's obviously available to the business and you know similarly to the point that Beth was making about redundancy versus furlough the employee might request to be furloughed in that circumstance because they might think I'd rather be at home on 80% than working it on 80% but if you've still got work for the employee to do then it's the business's decision as to whether or not to try and implement a contractual change so that the employee works for 80% of the time and gets paid for 80% of their pay rather than furlough and all similar considerations that we've discussed around consulting with employees about seeking their agreement to anything would apply in this context as it would in this context we've discussed already so when you are seeking to enforce a contractual change to the terms and conditions you need to go through a process of consultation with the employee first and then get their agreement to it 
Now, if they don't agree, um, if the change is reasonable and you've got reasonable business reasons for asking for that change and you've considered all the alternatives, there is the potential to, at that stage, effectively force through that change. The mechanism by which an employer does that sounds quite draconian, but is to effectively dismiss the employee for not accepting what is a reasonable request and change and then immediately offer to re-engage them on the new terms and conditions, thereby seeking to mitigate any um, impact on them. Um, it's obviously quite severe and we would hope that in the current economic circumstances, most employees would be collaborative and work with the employer, particularly when the employer is trying to do something like a reduction to 80%. Um, but there is a sort of ultimately a way to try and force that through um, but we would just say be mindful of you know whether what you're asking is reasonable um, because that will be relevant as to whether or not that is a fair or unfair step to take um, <coughs> um, so, pensions, just, uh, yes. before I answer the question about pensions saying that we're not pensions lawyers so um, but um, can you can you suggest to someone that to employees that they take a cut in pension in return for not being made redundant, even if this takes the company below the minimum contributions for auto enrolment? I think the answer to that is no. Your your legal obligations in relation to auto enrolment and all your other contractual and statutory obligations to your employee do not fall away in the current circumstances. So I think um, that you would have to you will have to maintain employers will have to maintain their minimum auto enrolment contributions, um, and part of that is not. Um, not encouraging or um, suggesting that people opt out of auto enrollment. So I think you would need to maintain those those uh, contributions as normal. And this, the second question we've just had is: Is there an increased risk of making employees redundant other than furloughed? Um, probably yes, because only so far as that employee will have been made redundant, therefore will have been dismissed. So there is always a risk that if you have conducted that process unfairly then that employee may have a claim of unfair dismissal based on an unfair redundancy process. And their losses that they would try and recover would be their loss of earnings going forward. And in a situation where we are now, those losses are likely to be greater than they would be in a time of um, more economic um, uh, sort of the unhealthy economy because that employee will find it more difficult to get another job. So in terms of you know, the, there actually being a greater risk, there probably is a bit of a greater risk, but provided both processes are conducted fairly and, and there's lots of checks and balances in place in those processes to make sure that the consultation is carried out, that there's impartial decision-making, then there shouldn't be a particularly diff particular difference in the risk between the two options. But obviously, if, the, if either of those processes is conducted unfairly, then the losses to the employee of redundancy are more significant than the losses of furlough. Um, so that's what increases the risk effectively. Um, so, Beth, do you have any other questions on furlough or on, on any of this before we move on? No. no. Um, so what I'm going to do next is just quickly summarise, because I appreciate um, that there's been a lot of change and also that a lot of people are now in a situation where people are working from home 100%. And so the sick pay during self-isolation isn't really an issue for a lot of people anymore. But there are still some issues coming out of the sick pay um, situation. And also the question is to whether or not people do or don't have to go to work or not. And uh, what is essential travel? So we're just going to talk a little bit about that for the next five or ten minutes um, and then leave some time for questions at the end. In terms of sick pay, where are we right now? So where we are right now is that sick pay kicks in from day one of absence rather than day four of absence. It is still £94.25 a week. There's still a lower earnings limit of £118 a week. It applies to workers and employees. So there's been a lot of discussion around zero hours workers not getting sick pay. They are eligible for sick pay if they meet the other criteria. But the reason that a lot of them won't get sick pay is because they don't have days that they normally work and you only get sick pay on a day that you normally work. And also because a lot of them won't meet that £118 lower earnings limit. So that's the position of zero hours contracts and sick pay broadly. Um, in terms of other... Um, Issues that have come up, particularly with the coronavirus crisis in relation to sick pay, have already been around self-isolation. And as I say, probably less applicable now because so many people are working at home. But in summary, if someone is self-isolating because they are following government guidelines and because of that self-isolation, they cannot work, then they are treated as eligible for a statutory sick pay. 
And I should say as well that what I've just summarised is all statutory sick pay. Contractual sick pay will vary employer to employer and it's not something that we're going to talk about for that reason. Um, so um, self-isolating people following the guidelines. So that's people that will be, say, self-isolating because they've had symptoms and, and they've got better. So they're not sick anymore, but they're, they're still self-isolating or people self-isolating because they're in a family or a household where someone has symptoms, they are eligible for statutory sick pay. And there is a question mark over whether or not people who are vulnerable, um, who are in that vulnerable group, but who have not been written to by the NHS this week to tell them to stay at home, are eligible for sick pay if they say, I am self-isolating because I am following a very cautious approach to the guidelines. So the most obvious example is pregnant women, um, because they are not going to be written to as part of that extra vulnerable group um, by unless the NHS. A, unless they have an underlying condition as well as their pregnancy. Yeah, so yet have been recommended by um, the government to self-isolate for, for 12 weeks. So they're in a really difficult position because technically they may not be eligible for statutory sick pay, um, but yet taking reasonable precautions, they would be um, self-isolating. Um, so there is a question mark over what the position is there. Um, so there are still some wrinkles in the sick pay position, which we're not quite clear about. The final category of people who are eligible for sick pay are people who are caring for someone who has coronavirus symptoms. Now that is probably a bit neither here nor there now, because if you're caring for someone with coronavirus symptoms, you should also be following the government guidance to self-isolate. So you should meet the sick pay rules one way or another. Um, and so um, I think one of them, there's I think two, well, one key issue that's come up a lot is around this concept of um, if you're well enough to go to work and your employer won't allow you to work from home, do you have to go to work? Um, and I think that the answer to that is not 100% clear. Um, we've seen quite a lot of queries where people have been saying, I'm still being made to go to work, but I think it's actually a danger to my health and safety to get on the tube to travel to work. Um, and the question I suppose is, well, if you didn't go to work, what would the employer's remedy be? And I think in that context, the employer's remedy would be to uh, not pay because it'd be an unauthorised absence and then to potentially take disciplinary action. And then you're into the realm of, well, are either of those two things reasonable responses um, to the situation? And I think in the current circumstances, there may be an argument to say that they're not reasonable in the situation and that, in fact, the employer's conduct in that regard is unfair to the employee, which may give the employee some entitlements to either claim unfair dismissal or constructive dismissal. But that's a sort of quite a tricky question, I think. Um, and hopefully most people on this call are in a position where they can ask a lot of their workforce to work from home. But obviously that doesn't apply to everybody. And that's something that's, that's coming up. That was not helped, I must say, by the government's um, information that was on the website um, or from the announcement on Monday, which basically on one page said, <coughs> excuse me, on one page said, um, you can only go leave the house for essential work. And then on the next page said, you can leave the house to go to work provided you can't work from home. The two are obviously not the same because people were going to work to do non-essential work, for example, at Sports Direct up until yesterday. Um, but then um, they were not able to work from home. So people were very confused about that. But um, the position appears to be clear that people who are doing work which cannot be done from home can still be made to travel to work by their employers. I just query whether or not if they raised a genuine health and safety concern, whether the employer would really have any remedy if that employee decided not to attend the workplace. And if the employer did, I mean, I think there are arguments flying around amongst employment lawyers about if someone did uh, refuse to go to work in those circumstances and was dismissed as a result, whether they would have a, um, whether it might be an automatic unfair dismissal for, health and, for having raised a health and safety concern or... Um, various other legal remedies but um and um, there's a few questions coming in I'm just going to deal with one other point which has come up a lot and that's around school closures so the rights of your employees who may not be able to do their job whether that's at home or whether that's at the workplace because their children are off school because of the school closures so and um, the legal position on this is that an employee, and there is a distinction here because this does not apply to workers, so employees only are entitled to reasonable time off to care for dependents, and they're also entitled to parental leave, um, so a certain um, number of weeks parental leave for, for each child. Um, so 
employees in those positions can use either of those leaves in this particular situation to cover any period of absence that they may need um, to look after children if the children's school has been closed. That leave is not paid under statutory rules. It may be paid under your own contractual policies and so therefore check what your employee's entitlements are. But the the government does not mandate that that leave must be paid. Um, There then is the question... It's not treated as sick leave um, unless the person that they're caring for is ill with coronavirus. Um, So they're not entitled to statutory sick pay. Um, But in terms of thinking about more practical solutions, what a lot of people are looking at is being flexible as to the timings that their employees can do their jobs. Now, we appreciate that will not work for everyone. So, you know, financial services institutions where the person's role is uh, is market related will not be able to do their job overnight. Uh, for example, and um, equally, someone who is going to work um, in an essential—well, I'm just going to say in an essential service. But if someone is going to work in an essential service like a hospital, then they can still send their children to school, so they do not get impacted by this. Um, so that's the other thing. You know, if someone's a key worker, then their children can still go to school. Um, but if someone, for example, can't do their job, then you know, there's a limit to what you can do. But there's a lot of jobs that people might be able to do, for example, on a split shift basis. So. You know, uh, we've had a lot of queries where you know, both parents are now working from home and they're trying to share the childcare between them, which means that not both of them will not be available during what is the usual working day, but both of them are able to put in the usual number of working hours. And I think if employers are getting those queries and are, from a business perspective, able to um, accept those queries and, um, you know, agree to some of those things that's great and I think you know we would encourage people to try and be flexible because we sort of all need to pull together but having said that we would say make sure that you're agreeing to those things on a trial basis because what you don't want to do is um (coughs) effectively agree to allow someone to change their terms conditions for however long this situation lasts um, and then get stuck with a, an arrangement that just doesn't work for the business um, when, in fact, your alternative might have been to put that person on furlough, for example, if you weren't able to give them any work. So I would say keep keep those people on a trial basis and just agree the period for review. So that will depend upon your business. But you might say we re- this is reviewed every two weeks to see how it's working for each of us. Um, so that's um, kind of one of the, the possible options to deal with the school closure issue. Um, we've had a a few questions on this. Um, <coughs> so can someone so, with a zero hours contract but who is normally paid via the payroll still make use of the furlough scheme? Yes, I think uh, anyone who's um, who's taxed by the PAYE scheme um, can make use, of, can, the employer can make use of the furlough scheme. The caveat to that is that um, the 80% is based on their normal earnings and unclear how exactly how that will be calculated. Um, we all hope it won't be quite as complicated as calculating normal earnings for the purposes of holiday pay. But essentially, that's the, um, the yes, zero hours contract does not prevent you from relying on the furlough scheme. Um, so we've had a question about SSP. Um, is it the case that those who've been written to by the NHS are eligible for SSP? Not 100% clear. My view is probably yes, because having looked at the legislation on SSP, the specific um, uh, rule basically says that if you are isolating in such a manner as to prevent infection or contamination with coronavirus in accordance with guidelines published by Public Health England, and by reason of that isolation is unable to work, and I think that that probably means that if you are isolating because you've been told to isolate by NHS or Public Health England, you come within that definition. Um, So I would say probably, yes, those people are entitled to sick pay. Um, It is, however, unclear. Um, The position immediately before that came out was that if you had been, if you had received a written notice to effectively isolate, you were entitled to sick pay. And what I haven't seen is what the actual NHS notice telling someone to stay at home says. And so I suppose it, to an extent, might just depend upon how, um, prescriptive that is about exactly what that person should and shouldn't do. Is it just a notice saying this is what we recommend for you based on your health condition or is it something that says you should stay at home uh, for the next 12 weeks? And I think if, it, if it's quite specific and prescriptive, then I think that they are much more likely to fall within that definition of SSP. I think, I think what they say is um, 
that they should stay at home for the next 12 weeks. Yeah. Um, and they don't, I don't think, specify in the notice what the condition is. So there are some people who are getting these notices um, who were not expecting them, I think. And that's, um, so they, and, and it's not, I, my understanding is it's not clear from the notices which are coming in why those people are in that category. So that I think there are generic notices being sent out to people in that category without um, being tailored, although they might get something further in, the, in writing by letter, but I think it's being sent out by um, electronically at the moment. Okay. Um, and the only other thing to add about SSP, which um, I didn't mention earlier, is that we've now got a position whereby small to medium-sized businesses, so those with less than 250 employees, can reclaim up to 14 days SSP per employee um, during this period. From the government, uh, I mean, at ninety-four pounds a week, it's not an enormous help, but it will make some help, particularly if you've got lots of people who are um, off sick at the same time. Um, we've had another question: school workers who are able to work but refuse to come in. What's the situation there? If they're ref- when when you say school workers, I'm assuming that is people who work in a school and I'm presuming that the reason that they're refusing to come in may relate to them saying there's a health and safety issue. Um, So again, that comes back to the point we mentioned about, you know, people who are worried about traveling, for example, to work, but whose workplace is still open because of a health and safety concern. And it comes back to Beth's point that there may be some protection from them from dismissal um, because they've, effectively raised a health and safety concern and um, it may also be ultimately unfair to dismiss or discipline that person for not coming to work um, but I think the position is is not clear um, and also they are essential key workers if they're working in a school that's open I think so they are people that are specifically allowed to keep going to work by the government um, I think it would be I, I probably wouldn't be recommending to an employer that it's safe to take any discipline or dismissal action against that person in the current circumstances but it would depend upon specifics I think for that situation um, if if what the question is actually around school workers as in people who don't work in the school but related to if someone is refusing to come in because they need to look after their children then they probably are entitled to unpaid leave to do that but they're not entitled to be paid um, and then there's a very good question about agency workers. Um, if you, if you are, as a business have agency workers, can you put those agency workers into furlough? Um, again, I think the position is not entirely clear, but um, it is likely that the PAYE, the employment contract, if there is one, and the PAYE deductions happen at the agency end rather than the end user, and, and that it would be the agency would have to, who would have to furlough those workers. Um, and I think they, so that, and I think that would be potentially quite challenging for the agency to say that they don't have work for those workers unless there is no other work other than that with the particular end user. But I think if you're the end user and you're not the one deducting the PAYE for them, I don't think you can furlough them. Yeah. Um, There's also a question about health and safety risk for employers who require employees to go to work, um, but it's not essential services. And I do think there is a health and safety risk here. I think employers have a general duty to protect the health and safety of their workforce. And and that includes taking reasonable steps. I think any employer who wants someone to come to work at the moment and put themselves at risk by travelling on the tube, um, for example, or the train or any sort of public transport. And in fact, even if they don't have to travel on public transport, they still need to be in another building with other people. If an employer is going ahead with that, even though they're not an essential service, I think the employer should be really doing a risk assessment before getting anyone to come in because at least that would go some way to defending their decision but I think an employer needs to be really thinking about whether that's necessary because um, the reality is as we know that employer is contributing to putting the health and safety of their staff but perhaps more importantly the health and safety of the wider public at risk by adding to the number of people that are out and about and not Um, self-isolating and not kind of complying with the lockdown provisions so I think um, and it arguably isn't in line with government advice so I know there are a number of employers who are doing this um, and I've seen a lot of people complaining um, in the press about the fact that they're still being required to go to work even though they don't consider it to be an essential service 
it's a huge issue in the construction industry, albeit I think there's another issue going on there, which is that a lot of those employees are technically not employees. They are self-employed. So they are choosing to go to work because it's the only way they can get any money. Um, but yes, I think uh, risk assessment and if you if it's possible to avoid having people coming in, um, do that. And if it's not, then put in place additional risk prevention measures. So make sure that no one is sitting within two metres of each other. Make sure that people can, um, you know, if possible, drive to the workplace rather than get the train. Make sure you have absolutely adequate hand washing and hand sanitizer facilities. Allow people to travel at less busy times of the day. Um, just put in place all the measures you can to protect the health and safety of the workers. And someone's just asked a question um, about if if the people's if concerns are. Um, around the actual workplace rather than the travel. <clears throat> so if they're concerned about contamination in the workplace due to mixing, for example, with staff and children in a school situation, um, I think the same considerations apply, that you ought to be putting in place appropriate health and safety protections for those staff, um, and reassuring them as far as you can that you're putting those protections in place. Um, but if ultimately they feel that those protections aren't enough or that they feel that they can't come into work because of those, um, because of their health and safety concerns, um, I think it would it would take quite a brave employer, I think, to say, well, you have to come in in all the circumstances, particularly where that person has an underlying condition. Um, but, uh, yeah. Hey, I mean, I think in certain circumstances, it may not be reasonable to continue to pay that person. Um, and, I mean, one, I'd say, you know, what does the contract say um, about that? Um, you know, it may be that you have to continue paying them. But, you know, I, I agree with what Beth says, it would take a brave employer to terminate. But um, perhaps thinking about pay is a, is a way um, around that. But again, there is a risk not paying. The employee would treat that as a breach of contract and um, therefore potentially constructive dismissal. And if your goal is to actually kind of keep them employed and coming into work as much as possible, that might not achieve what you want it to achieve. No, I think there's the practical issue, isn't there, of um, whether people are going to, in fact, in this current situation, uh, resign and claim constructive dismissal because um, yeah. it's such a it's in any in any environment it's a, it's a big step to make and it's a the, you know the, it's a very difficult claim to bring. So I think there is the employers have some comfort that in practice people are less likely to be doing that than they might in other in other circumstances. But I think it's something to um, yeah. Be aware of nonetheless. Yeah, and except one further point on that is just that key workers perhaps are in more secure job roles than other workers right now because they probably are doing things that are not impacted economically by the current circumstances. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's difficult, and that's it's a common question that we're we're seeing asked. Um, I don't I don't have any other questions on my list. I don't either. If anyone has any questions, I'm happy to take more. We're just coming up to the end, but happy to keep taking questions for a few minutes if people have any. And if anyone has any questions they haven't been able to ask, then let us know because we're doing a, a, another version of this this afternoon. Um, and, we'll, we are, and we'll answer any additional questions then in that session. And then you'll have that recorded afterwards great thank you everyone for thank coming so much for joining this morning and um, i hope you all have uh, good days get out for your one daily outdoor exercise experience make the most of it and um yeah do get in touch if there's anything we can help you with um, we realize these are unprecedented times for everyone challenging for all of us and if we all just kind of share our knowledge, information and experience, then we should hopefully all get through this a little bit easier than we might otherwise. So thanks for joining. Thanks very much for joining everybody. Hi. Hi. Hi.
Hi. Hi. Well done. Well done. We've oh, we got, got some nice comments. Yeah, we get nice comments. And like, some the person that said like, oh, the contractual obligation to pay when employees eligible for statutory. I mean, I did say earlier I wasn't going to cover that. And um, I like the no, person great interaction between the two of you. That was really nice. Who is that? Who's that? Sorry. I can't tell who people are. Yeah. Who's that? Who's HC5986. Oh, I but don't know who that is. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Um, I'm just going to make a note of that um, contractual obligation just so that we can answer it. Contract it will be um, the option with the recording. It should convert it. Okay, so if I stop recording.